Hello and welcome to a brand new, fresh episode of Media Buddhi A to Z. I'm HR Venkatesh from BoomLive.in. We are independent fact checkers operating in India and also Bangladesh and Myanmar. I'm speaking from New Delhi or Delhi, which I've called home for very many years now. And in a way that surprises me still, I really started to like living in Delhi after about six months. I guess the worst that can be said about my relationship with Delhi is that it's a bit like a classic abusive relationship. The air is bad, the weather is tough. I wonder why I'm here, but I'm still getting something out of it. Which again, to my surprise, are all the lovely people of Delhi who are quite welcoming for all, you know, wherever you are in the world, they're very, very welcoming. So maybe not an abusive relationship, but definitely an acquired taste. Delhi is love, I agree. D for Delhi and also today's episode is focused on the letter D. And so far we've covered letters A, B, C and a special episode. So this is actually our fifth episode. And to all those who are joining us anew, in this podcast series, we tackle words to help us have better conversations. Yeah, I I don't think I share the same enthusiasm about Delhi as both of you. I mean, I haven't really spent enough time in the city to form that kind of attachment. And uh, although it's true, the food there is great. I've had a lovely time, you know, discovering all it has to offer. But, you know, it's the Delhi air I'm so scared of. Otherwise, I'd actually have moved to Delhi already. And yeah, talking about D for Delhi, today we have some interesting words like disinformation, decisions, demographic anxiety, and dog whistling. So we start with disinformation. Now, firstly, what is disinformation and how is it different from misinformation? Well, the difference really lies in the intent. Misinformation is when you share false information without knowing that it's false. Basically, you unintentionally share fake news. However, when you intentionally share incorrect information with a specific motive in mind, that's when it is really disinformation. As fact-checkers, it's very difficult for us to categorize false information under misinformation and disinformation. As you know, it's not very easy to find whether somebody shared fake news intentionally or not. But one example of disinformation would be political misinformation. You know, that is usually done intentionally to woo the voters. Arches, what do you think? Do you have any examples of political disinformation? Yeah, I just actually remember a pretty recent one. So uh, during uh, the farewell event of uh, the outgoing president, the former president Ramnath Kovind, uh, there was a little gathering and a video from that gathering went viral and showed uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, standing and looking at the camera, staring at the camera while uh, the former president, he folds his hand and he greets, he he appears to greet the prime minister. And uh, just from looking at that six minute clip, uh, it almost feels like, you know, uh, uh, the prime minister is kind of ignoring the former president and not greeting him back, but instead just looking at the camera. And this was shared widely by uh, political opponents of Narendra Modi, uh, by some AAP leaders, by some TRS leaders here. And, uh, and then we found the larger clipping, you know, which actually showed uh, the prime minister uh, greeting him back. And uh, so this, this, uh, this thing was shared, this clip was uh, very intentfully clipped uh, and shared to make it appear uh, like something that it wasn't. And so this would be political disinformation. 
Right, right. Uh, also, Venkatesh, uh, do you think misinformation is more harmful than disinformation or is it the other way around? You know, if you look at it from the the person who's receiving all this information, it doesn't really make a difference, right? Whether it's harmful or not harmful. I would say they're just close cousins. Misinformation follows on the heels of disinformation and... Um, you know, disinformation, we're living in the age of disinformation, or we can call it the decade of disinformation. Uh, ever since, I think, the age of social media rose, uh, arose in, I guess, 2010 or so, um, and then 2011 onwards, and then there was cheap internet, and then there was the availability of smartphones, and so hundreds of millions of people got connected for the very first time without really none of us knowing how to behave online in this world Disinformation has been like huge. And I think most elections around the world have happened or the governments that have come in have been voted in on the back of misinformation and disinformation campaigns. I mean, this is a huge generalization, so I'll kind of walk it back a little, but definitely in India, we've seen that disinformation has played a huge role in uh, election campaigns and the winners of elections uh, in India's case, it's mostly the BJP. You know, it's all happened because, partly because of uh, disinformation campaigns. Um, but for the for the for the arm army and and the arm aurat and the arm you know non-binary person, it doesn't really make a difference, right? Whether it's misinformation or disinformation. Uh, so that that I wanted to say. And one other thing is, I we spoke about this recently. You know, uh, each time there is a problem, it leads to a solution. And then the solution doesn't happen overnight. It takes many years. So the example I'll give is hacking. Uh, you know, it was a problem for many uh, corporations and individuals. Over the years, it, it gave birth to an industry called cybersecurity. I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying this, uh, but I just wanted to make that kind of connection. So similarly, we've had the age of disinformation and we've had a lot of people trying to create solutions and we're still in that 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 process and maybe a few years down the line we'll be like okay disinformation the age of disinformation led to this but we're not there yet we're still in that process right also i wonder how to make people accountable for sharing misinformation or disinformation i mean where does the buck really stop or does it stop? I mean, the problem is also that even if people are being told that, you know, look, you've shared incorrect information and here's a fact check on it, they don't always agree to it or believe it and rather start justifying themselves. Yeah, this is something we're going to continue to talk about. Uh, we've already discussed the whole idea of how people make up their minds and, you know, the role of, uh, you know, cognitive bias or various types of cognitive biases. Um it's just that, you know, one line that I that I I think I came up with myself and I probably read it somewhere else as well is that facts alone are not going to change beliefs, right? Other beliefs, or stories and narratives that are probably going to change beliefs. Um, and yeah, this story is still being written at the moment. Uh, so I'll, I'll that's probably what I'm going to say for the, for the moment on that. Yeah, like uh, Venkatesh mentioned, uh, why people believe misinformation more than fact checks is something we've already discussed in our previous episode. So you can listen to our discussion there. Okay, 
So taking on from there, up next, we have our next word, decisions. Uh, so Devya Venkatesh, what would you say are some of the most important decisions that you make daily? Well, I recently found out that we make thousands of decisions a day. So uh, Devya, you go first and then maybe I'll, I'll chime in. Yeah, I mean, so many, uh, you know, to start with what to eat and breakfast, sorting out the daily office work. And to be honest, to go to office or not or work from home, so many decisions. And, and you know, really small micro decisions, like just before recording this podcast, I was thinking, do I place the mic to the right of the computer screen? Should I have a glass of hot tea or should it be hot water? You know, do I have an AC on or off in this crazy daily heat? Uh, will it interfere with the recording? How do I place the chair? What kind of clothes do I wear? You know, micro decisions, stuff like that. So, you know, so taking on from what you said, it's actually true that there are thousands of decisions you make in a day. And, you know, there's a book called Bad Moves, How Decision Making Goes Wrong and Ethics of Smart Drugs. Drugs. We'll include a link to this uh, in the description. So according to this book, we apparently make 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every day that's that's a lot of decisions what do you still think that's actually a lot of decisions i read <laughs> that we make around 230 food related decisions every day according to some cornell university researchers yeah i mean uh, when you go down the decision rabbit hole or you go down the rabbit hole of anything right you find more and more and it's kind of got me thinking it you know, why? okay, so we'll talk about it a little later. Why are we talking about decisions uh, in this podcast about words that help us have better conversations or make better decisions in the world of information overload? But I believe there's also a difference between stuff like what is a decision and what is a choice? That, that's a good question, actually. And I think it's something that we confront pretty much every day. And uh, I mean, there are so many decision-making processes, you know, that uh, occur in our minds every single day. And at what point are we going to call it a choice? And what point are we going to call it a decision? And actually, these two words are so interchangeably used, it's very easy to confuse one for the other. And the same act of, you know, deciding on something can be seen as choosing something. But so I read this up and apparently it's the process that differs. You know, when you're making a choice, you're choosing the best alternative out of many outcomes. Uh, whereas when, when you're deciding something, you're coming to an absolute resolution after taking into consideration uh, many other factors, basically. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? For example, you, know, you, you choose between a range of clothes. So you have a couple of clothes and you choose the best one out of that many. Or say you decide what kind of clothes you're going to wear. Okay, I'm going to wear uh, uh, this uh, formal attire or casual. And then you decide on one specific one. Okay, like uh, this is the one. There's no other best alternative. Uh, I've come to a resolution. So that makes it a decision as opposed to a choice. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does make it really clear now. And I see what you mean by people possibly disagree. Most people miss the difference, uh, you know, between the two words and can easily mistake it for one another. Can I say something here? I mean, I really love decisions, but I hate choices. The more choices there are, the more paralyzed I become, uh, especially when it comes to food choices. Um, and, <laughs> you know, every day I think about many food choices, but in, in the end, I end up eating the same thing. <laughs> that is so <laughs> choice process that is particularly, uh, you know, 
irritating. I wonder if that's the word. Anyway, you know, I, the, the reason we're talking about decisions is that there is a link between decisions and the disinformation or the propaganda. I, I won't say disinformation. I'll just say propaganda that we believe. And being aware of how many decisions we're forced to make every day kind of makes us aware that we don't have to feel really bad about not being able to spot, you know, fake news or disinformation because all these decisions, uh, they're all automatic, most of them for us, right? Just... Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we spoke about it last episode, right? Uh, the system one and system two of thinking where we uh, brought in some uh, brilliant researchers and their work. So this system one, we spoke about it as the intuitive and fast thinking. So, you know, like us making spot decisions from time to time, which is basically what we do most of the time. And we call it the Homer Simpson. Uh, and system two was the Captain Spock, right? It was from the book Nudge. And this system two was, you know, the rational type of thinking. So most of the day we are using system one, you know, the fast mode of thinking where we are intuitively thinking and, you know, uh, we are often making irrational decisions. So, uh, so, and it is totally, totally fine and totally common for everybody to do that on a daily basis. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you can't always be in control of your decisions, but it helps to be aware of how you're deciding, how many times you're deciding and what are the possible errors you can make, you know, so that you don't make a big, big error in life, you know, and when the stakes are higher, uh, so that you're able to decide better in those times, just for that sake. Uh, you should just be a bit more aware. So what do we have next? So now we're going to bring in a word that is a result of a full-blown Homer Simpson type of thinking. And the word is demographic anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I just say something before we get into demographic anxiety about decisions? You know, the whole D for decisions and there's D for decisive as well. And in our politics, it is... We, we get attracted to people who seem to be very decisive and who are, who will say, you know what, I'm going to fix this problem. It, you know, it's making it, making the problem simpler than it sounds. And we've seen this with uh, the other D, Donald Trump, right? President Trump used to make these sweeping declarations that used to create a feeling of certainty among people and give them an idea that everything is under control. Now, these turn out to be illusions because you can't oversimplify stuff. But appearing decisive, is is something that really comforts voters. And I can say that even Pres uh, Prime Minister Modi comes across as very, very decisive, right? Now, is he actually decisive? Is, th is that being decisive? Is, it, is that a good thing? Is it a good thing in all t at all times? Or is it only good at some times? Now, these are some things that we can discuss in detail. But that's the thing I wanted to say about being decisive um, and the comfort it gives us when we have someone who appears very, very decisive. And that's why we end up voting for those people, compared especially to the predecessor of uh, Prime Minister Modi, who was Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. Here, here's a man who appeared to be very, very indecisive, right? But I guess history, we'll, we'll take a look at it five, ten years later, and we'll see how good really uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh was and how good really Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been. Uh, so... Demographic anxiety. I received this forward the other day from a well-meaning relative. And it said, and I quote, and I'm quoting now, according to a Harvard University study, the Islamization of a country cannot be stopped once the Muslim population reaches 16% of the total population. This is what Islam expert Nicoletta 
Incha, I don't know how to pronounce the name, said on 22nd June 2019 on Hungarian public television. Close quotes. So this is the quote, and I'm reading out from the uh, forward. It is a long forward that essentially says that, you know, this is what will happen to a country with 10% Muslim population, 16%, you know, Muslim population, and so on and so forth. And I, I and, and that forward had a link to a website uh, called IsraelWire.com. And essentially, when I clicked on it, it took me to a spam website. So immediately, I should say that, hey, this is not true at all, okay? Uh, this is like speculation, and you can speculation on, sorry, you can speculate on anything, right? Um, and the people who've been quoted uh, is, is a Hungarian person. Now, Hungary has gone down the right-wing uh, route, that is the anti-Islamic route. Uh, we've seen that uh, in the last 10 years or so. Uh, and, the, and the source of this website, which turned out to be a spam website, uh, uses the word Israel. So we already know off the bat that this is something uh, that purportedly is from a uh, an anti-Muslim bias in the very, in the very first place, right? But we are not equipped to deal with these kinds of forwards here in India or anywhere else in the world, right? We don't have the tools to deal with something like this. Uh, we can try to fact check it, but you know, fact checking doesn't always um, focus on the emotions that make us believe this kind of stuff. And believe me, this this forward in particular has been forwarded many, many, many times in India. It's kind of a viral forward. So I'll just stop there and let you guys speak. Yeah, I, I mean, the I, I see what you mean by not you know not being able to fact check it, and even if we do fact check it, would it really help? I mean, as for the fact-checking part, I mean, there would be ways to fact-check some of the things. And if you actually look into the details of what is being said, uh, then then a message like this would uh, come to unravel. For example, it gave the example of, uh, say, countries like Lebanon. Uh, I'm looking at the message right now and it says that if uh, the Muslim population goes above 40%, apparently there are uh, widespread massacres and gave the example of Lebanon, for example. And it is a country where a lot of massacres have taken place. But if we actually look closely in the 20th century, the, the biggest massacres that took place were on Muslims and they were by phalangists, Christian extremists uh, during uh, the, the, the siege of Tel al-Zatar in 1976 and during the massacre of Sabra and Shatila. Overall, uh, uh, like an estimated uh, 18, uh, 1,800 to almost 5,000 people died in both these massacres. You know? And the people who were killed, they were mostly Palestinian Muslims. So, uh, so something like this, if you keep looking at these, uh, these countries where they, they're giving example of, and you see one by one, uh, you'll, you'll start to see that, okay, it's not as straightforward as they say. It's not just Muslims going crazy and attacking these people. And you can always do something like, you know, look into this, who this Nicolette uh, Inche is and uh, see what her work uh, has been about, if there's an agenda or, or, or if, you know, if she's really uh, being unbiased. All of these things can be figured out. Right. Also, there's a very popular narrative uh, in India that, you know, the Muslim population in so-and-so year will outnumber the Hindu population and they are, their reproductive rate is going really high and, you know, they're going to multiply like crazy. So uh, one one way to debunk this would be, you know, um, going on the NFHS site, basically the National uh, Family Health Survey and going through the data and seeing that, you know, this 
this narrative can be very easily debunked. Like uh, they have the exact numbers, fertility rate, uh, reproductive rate, uh, religion-wise. So, I mean, the numbers are not even close. But the narrative is so popular that, you know, it's it's, it's become like a household thing. That's actually a great example you just gave. And NFHS data, uh, if you're too lazy to do the calculations, uh, Pew Research Center have, have actually they have actually done it already and they've done all the work. They did a study uh, last year called Religion in India. It was a very extensive study and it was very detailed. And they took the NFHS data to show how the fertility rate has been going up and down. And uh, so it is true that the Muslim fertility rate was the highest which means the number of babies an average Muslim woman was uh, expected to have was the highest at some point. But uh, India's overall fertility rate has been declining very rapidly. And Muslim, the Muslim community has seen the highest decline in fertility rate, so much so that it is almost down to the same level as the Hindu fertility rate. And it's expected to, you know, the, the, the two fertility rates of Hindu and Muslim, they're expected to coincide and meet at some point and then you know maybe the muslim fertility rate would go down if the trend continues further so this idea it actually makes no sense that the muslim would take over the population i mean i mean the number of human beings it would need you know to be put only in the country i don't think we have that many space like that much space for that many humans to reach to that level yeah and 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 uh, you know such forwards are aimed at especially in, in India, it's aimed at the Hindu community, right? Um, um, especially those who have been, you know, uh, been used to a barrage of such messages. So it's not just one message. And, and these feelings, uh, the feelings that these messages arouse are of anxiety, right? So that's why we're calling it demographic anxiety. And as I was just saying, it's not just one narrative on its own. It's not just one forward we're talking about. It links up with all the narratives about Muslims in India and narratives that go back several decades. Uh, And in fact, from before independence, uh, through partition, through the Ram Temple movement in the 1990s, through various flashpoints, uh, you know, the Godra violence in 2002, uh, through various attacks against the community. And in the last few years as well, you know, the uh, bully by Suli deals uh, thing that happened. Essentially, we see that there's, a lot of it is mixed up, right? So from love jihad to stopping people to doing namaz or stopping the use of loudspeakers or the CAA or NRC, you know, in India, you can't escape a single day without being subject to a barrage of anti-Muslim messages. And when you point this out, they'll be like, hey, Hindus are victims too. How come you don't talk about that? You know, so it's this, and, and essentially we will address those anxieties as well at some point. But the point I want to make here is that demographic anxiety is a very real thing and it is creating panic among people for no real reason. Uh, and in any case, it's uh, you know unethical and immoral to target a particular community, right? Uh, like this, but the whole point is, even if you want to keep ethics and morals aside, you know, based on the basis of facts alone, these messages are wrong. So I just wanted to say that. So uh, also, I want I would like to add that uh, the type of media you consume influence uh, this part of you a lot and can and go uh, really far in feeding your demographic and anxiety. 
and in fact uh, from what i see around me the people who actually experience this kind of anxiety the most you know uh, it's it happens due to what they saw on social media or you know what they read in the news and uh, you know so by now we already should be aware very well that you know like the news is driven by agenda and what's on social media it's there to you know influence you and influence your perception of the world we have been discussing all of this for a while now so uh, just, just you should just be aware also of this that you know you can be kind of affected uh, and your views can be you know uh, made even worse uh, through the media you consume yeah yeah and i was just saying that i think this would be like a classic example to tell that how uh, facts and data travel at such a uh, less speed as compared to misinformation does so like let's say 10 people know about this forward or let's say 10 people know about this narrative but maybe one or two or maybe nobody would know about the nfhs data what it says what the fact checks say so it's it becomes so difficult to put the facts across and it becomes it, it's like so easy to put uh, misinformation across <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean you said it but i think i'll just say one more thing uh, on this topic which is that this is very much an ongoing theme here in this podcast and what we're discussing here should not be considered the last word uh, and i think over the next few episodes we'll develop a, a way to deal with this kind of misinformation or messaging at least we'll talk about it you know what i mean and i just want to say one thing which is that at the shorenstein center at uh, harvard university at the kennedy school there there is a new term that they have created called racialized disinformation which is basically any kind of harmful messaging uh, that is racialized or it focuses on race and i think in india too we need to have a special term for something like this to to borrow their example maybe we can use a term like religionized disinformation i mean it doesn't have the uh, ease of um pronounceability like you know uh, the other word which is racialized but religionized disinformation um, you know i don't know if it's a good enough term but if you all are listening to this and you have some thoughts maybe you can come up with some names and we can discuss it uh, at a further episode so now our next word is decolonization but what does it really mean well firstly it's connected to the word colonization which simply means the act of colonizing basically the establishing of a colony so decolonization literally means becoming independent of the colonizing state you know for the longest time devya i really didn't understand what colonial and post colonial was um you know because i used to listen to a lot of people who've studied this kind of um um you know the, these themes in literature and social sciences anthropology and all all the sciences basically and i used to my eyes used to glaze over until i figured out what it means um and and even the word like a word like decolonization was first used by academics uh and then it became the preserve of the left and and then now in india the right seems to have appropriated it so when you say something that the right interprets as being elitist you might hear things like you have to decolonize your mind uh, and if you say something like we need more democracy and more rights for individuals you might hear the term someone say hey you got to decolonize your mind uh, if you say something like hey we need to ensure religion should not mix with politics and should not mix with the state they might again say hey you need to decolonize your mind 
Yeah, it sounds something like, you know, anybody can use to uh, to say pretty much anything. You know, for me, the idea of decolonization is basically uh, kind of freeing yourself from uh, certain ways of thinking that was maybe put upon you by people who had come to maybe, I don't know, take over I mean, col- col- colonial rulers, basically. Uh, but uh, the kind of usage that you're talking about, I think, is the uh, same as, you know, uh, basically anytime, any kind of value that has a link with, say, Western values or liberal values, uh, whenever they come across conservative values in India, they use that decolonization as a way to say, oh, uh, maybe don't uh, get rid of your non-conservative values, you know, but they're not the same thing, you know. Just being liberal is not always being Western and being against conservatism or towards progress. It's not just something that, you know, uh, that is in the West and, you know, all of this is Western and, you know, decolonize yourself. I think that's yeah, well, uh, that's an erroneous way of using the word. Well said, well said. Uh, and there are excellent reasons as, as, as uh, at the same time to use the word decolonize. It is but natural that our history is colonial. So maybe decolonizing ourselves from a history perspective is a good thing, definitely is a good thing, except that in the name of decolonization, there are now moves to rewrite history. So I'm not so sure what I, you know, I don't like that, obviously, but I I feel today in India, two projects are getting conflated or combined uh, with this decolonized movement, right? The first is a necessary movement or project where we look at new lenses through which we look our history and say, hey, this is written from an English or colonial perspective. Now, that is a good move, in my opinion. The problem happens when the second project comes into the picture, when people who have already made up their minds or they have an ideological bias to the right say that, hey, all the textbooks or books in the last 70 years, they're all colonial, we need to rewrite them. This essentially ignores the fact that we have very excellent historiography of very many historians who've spent their entire careers trying to decolonize themselves. So essentially, the right wants to combine the the good project of decolonizing with the rewriting of history. I think this is something we should all be aware of at the very least. And that's that with decolonization. We're going fast today. Now, what's next? The next word is dog whistling. And I think that's the last word also. Wow. Okay, so a dog whistle is exactly what the word sounds like. It's a whistle for dogs. So why are we talking about that? We're talking about dog whistle politics. So just like a dog whistle emits sounds that are at such a high frequency that only dogs can hear them. Humans cannot hear these sounds because they're beyond our upper range of hearing. Uh, In politics, dog whistling refers to speeches or terms that only make sense to a select group of people. People outside that group will obviously hear these words, but they won't understand that particular significance. Uh, And I want to ask you both, uh, any examples of this come to mind? I think uh, back in 2020, uh, where there were protests over the killing of George Floyd, you know, the unarmed black man was killed uh, by a policeman who put a knee on his throat. Uh, so just uh, after that, there were protests going on and uh, Donald Trump, the former president, he said something like, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Uh, now, I, now, this was, I think, dog whistling because uh, 
I mean, it just seems like some random words he said, but there there is a history behind this, you know, and these same words were uh, said, uh, used by this uh, Miami police chief in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, with a record of hatred against the black community. And, you know, that's why this kind of uh, phrase or sentence is kind of uh, associated with the oppressing of black people. So, uh, so, so this could be, you know, taken as dog whistling and just like a secret way to let, let the people know, okay, like if you uh, protest too much, we're going to come down hard on you. Also, I don't know, like uh, during uh, the capital, the, the capital riots, you know, that happened in January 6th, you know, and uh, all the events that led to this. And, you know, you uh, often see videos of uh, Trump or other leaders basically making statements, you know, and making these very wheeled comments that if you put it into perspective and if you actually follow the, the trial that is going on January 6th, uh, then uh, all these videos will start to make sense. You know, they weren't just random things they were saying and they were coded words uh, or phrases that were being used to egg on the crowd. And, you know, it had a lot of uh, links with the kind of posts uh, these people were following. A lot of them were queuing on and they were following these forums on 4chan and Reddit. So a lot of these common words that these communities use uh, were kind of used in these speeches, you know, so, to, so that only they would understand what's being really said. And, you know, it did the job, you know, they, they really kind of attempted an insurrection. It was quite freaky. Yeah. And, and closer home, there's an example as well in, uh, I think it was February 2020, Kapil Mishra, um, who's a BJP politician in New Delhi at that point, didn't hold any official government post. He uh, nonetheless gave an ultimatum to the Delhi police. And he said, and I quote, a three-day ultimatum to Delhi police, get the streets of Jafrabad and Chandbagh cleared. After this, don't explain anything to us. We will not listen to you. Just three days. So this is this call was made by Mishra during the anti-CA protests. You know, this is before uh, COVID uh, came to roost, right? When load and, and the CA protests, roads were blocked by protesters. And within hours of that remark, uh, rioting began, which eventually took several lives, more than two dozen lives. Now, the reason I bring this up is, is this dog whistling? No, it seems like an open incitement to violence. Uh, and in contrast to this, Mishra himself tweeted out the other words uh, before elections in New Delhi. And in that it said, and I quote again his other tweet, India versus Pakistan, February 8th in Delhi, India and Pakistan will compete on the streets of Delhi. Now, this is closer to a dog whistle. It's not an overt incitement to, 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 uh, to any kind of uh, violence, right? And um, a lot of people will be put off by such a tweet, but for those who, whose whole entire identity revolves around the binary of Hindu and Muslim, it can be a clear signal. So I would say, I mean, it's still subject to debate, but the later case seems like dog whistling. The earlier case could be interpreted as not dog whistling, but basically open its insight. So if I'm getting this right, I think there's a thin line between dog whistling and open incitement. So how do we decide or rather who decides whether it's dog whistling or open incitement? I think the point that, um, you know, is, you know, we don't have to get that right, whether it's exactly dog whistling or whether it's open an open call for something. Um, I think as a society becomes more gripped by a certain kind of politics or a certain kind of politics captures society, we move from 
coded messages like dog whistling to open calls. Uh, and by the way, it's worth pointing out that dog whistles are not the only form of coded language. Uh, you know, when it comes to humor or hasya, sarcasm is another form. Those who use it all the time, for example, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, sarcasm in the English language, there's nobody to beat um, American teenagers, right? Um, they will unfailingly identify sarcasm, but others will take sarcasm literally. In India, I'm not 100% sure that we always get sarcasm, right? Especially, I mean, in our languages, uh, non-English languages, um, I made the mistake of saying our languages as if English is not our language. English is also our language, but you know the other languages, uh, I don't know to what extent sarcasm is used and to what extent, but sarcasm itself is coded language. So uh, I just wanted to end on that slightly rambly kind of note. Right. So this brings us to the end of our fifth episode. Oh, wow. That's uh, This was a short one. So next episode, we will tackle E-words, obviously. If you have any suggestions uh, for any words that you'd want us to talk about, please to write to us on podcasts at boomlive.in. And you can subscribe to Boom's podcast on platforms like Apple and Spotify. Thanks for listening.